847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, uh, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. For this episode, I'd like to introduce a new topic, uh, something more along the lines of a segment centered on uh, whatever I'm currently listening to. Um, you know, my focus on this podcast is often on the past, uh, the history of music for film and television through retrospectives and overviews, uh, sometimes of composers who have passed away like Bernard Herrmann, uh, or simply have extensively long careers in the industry like John Williams. But other than my interview episodes, I don't often present examples of current film and TV scores or new releases of classic scores. So my idea is that in addition to my interviews, and my usual expansive listening to topics um, on specific uh, composers. My idea is for a segment that I'm labeling Now Playing, uh, during which I plan to feature a current movie title, uh, plus either uh, a new release or a new recording of a classic score. Uh, And in this case, it will actually be all three of those. So let's start with the current title, or in this case, relatively current title. (laughs) Uh, 2018 was a surprisingly memorable year for new film music, uh, as there were more scores that caught my attention uh, than in many previous years. Hopefully without sounding too cynical for a moment, for someone like me, let's say an elder soundtrack aficionado, it's much more difficult to be impressed by the current trends uh, than what was heard in previous eras uh, in movie music. And many in our fervent uh, communities bemoan the loss of great film music and note that it's mostly been on a downward trend for the last decade or more, if we're being kind. But there are still gems composed each new year, sometimes by an established name and sometimes by a newcomer. Now, in 2019, I kept getting impressed by a number of scores, one after another, and actually wound up buying more soundtracks to current movies than I had in a while. There were three great scores apiece by Alan Silvestri and Michael Giacchino, There was John Powell's energetic work on Solo. Mary Poppins Returns had an awesome score by Mark Shaman. And there was Nicholas Bertel's music for Vice, which was um, also excellent. Uh, One of these I'd like to spotlight for this initial entry in the now playing segment is music from 2018's First Man, composed by Justin Hurwitz. First Man, directed by Damien Chazelle, portrays the life story of stoic astronaut Neil Armstrong and his experiences and trials leading up to and concluding with his monumental trip to the moon in 1968. The music is composed by newcomer Justin Hurwitz, who previously collaborated with Chazelle on Whiplash in 2014 and the musical hit La La Land in 2016, the latter for which he won two Academy Awards, both song and score. Justin was born in Los Angeles in 1985 and actually studied at Harvard alongside uh, director Damien Chazelle. Uh, They developed a friendship uh, at that time. And he's really proven himself a wonderful new voice in film music. Uh, His music for First Man is often understated, much like Neil Armstrong himself, but has uh, colorful and lively instrumentation, uh, some really lovely melodies, and it 
climaxes with this really blockbuster cue called the landing, which underscores, of course, the moon landing. Uh, it's a fantastic cue that really caught my attention in the theater. Uh, so here's uh, some of that cue, the landing from First Man. What I find compelling about this cue is that it's driven by this repeating ostinato figure in the strings, which you can hear. Um, and this ostinato, uh, this repeating figure, acts as an engine for the piece. And then as more textures are added, it sort of continues to, uh, to drive it. In an interview with uh, Kristen Romanelli for Filmscore Monthly Online, Hurwitz talked about this as an idea that he fleshed out early in production for director Chazelle. Uh, and he stated as a quote, he wanted me to figure out a secondary piece of material that we've always called the riff. It's the triplet figure that serves as the motor of the landing cue, which we also use elsewhere, particularly on harp for some of the family scenes. It's more of an ostinato than a melody, but we wanted it to still be lyrical, to still have some heartbreak in it, so the top voice traces a shape that is somewhat melodic, end quote.
So that repeating riff that drives the landing cue, it, it reoccurs throughout the movie, as Hurwitz noted, often on solo harp, and winds up being effective for various moods uh, throughout the score. Now, one of the unexpected instrumental colors in the score uh, that Hurwitz uses is the theremin. Now, the theremin is an electronic instrument that uh, has been around for decades. It's actually most associated with science fiction movies from the 50s and 60s, um, and it's uh, used, for example, in The Day the Earth Stood Still with music by Bernard Herrmann. But now it's become more of a musical shorthand for something weird and, and goofy, uh, and it gets used in parodies uh, like in Mars Attacks. Uh, however, in First Man, Hurwitz employs the theremin in an unironic fashion, um, so he uses it very he uses it very straight faced. Um, one example is in this cue called "I Ought to Be Getting Home," uh, as the theremin performs the primary melody for the movie. As I noted earlier, much of the first man's score is quiet and introspective, a far cry from what I'd initially expected, uh, which was would be more akin to Bill Conti's score for The Right Stuff or James Horner's music for Apollo 13. But those scores were more about the epic events themselves, whereas the music in First Man is more about just one man. Um, and so I think that uh, accounts for why there is such a difference in the music sort of really stating who Neil Armstrong is as a person as opposed to scoring the event of the moon landing, although that cue is pretty darn great. Um, there's another standout cue that impressed me when I first saw the movie, and that's the docking sequence above Earth between the Gemini and the Agena uh, spacecrafts, uh, which is set to a light waltz. And it was purposefully orchestrated to invoke uh, Johann Strauss's uh, The Blue Danube Waltz, uh, which was used, of course, famously by Stanley Kubrick in 2001 A Space Odyssey. So here's a bit of that docking waltz uh, from First Man. Thank you. 
I was actually a bit surprised that Justin Hurwitz didn't receive an Academy Award nomination for his first man score, seeing as how he'd already won for La La Land, and that the docking and moon landing sequences in the movie prominently present his music. Uh, but I think regardless, it's certainly a highlight from last year's crop of new film music. Moving on to the next new soundtrack album release that I want to spotlight, this would be a classic title that's received a wonderful expansion, and this is the two-CD complete edition of Arthur Rubinstein's War Games from 1983. This new edition is from Quartet Records. War Games was directed by John Badham and starred Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy as high school students uh, caught up in the story of a video game about nuclear war possibly having real-world consequences. It's one of those seminal movies from my generation, uh, growing up in the 1980s, uh, one that I watched countless times on TV and still have a great affinity for. I mean, am I right, Joshua? Wouldn't you prefer a good game of chess? Uh, never mind. <laughs> so back at the time of the movie's release, the soundtrack was issued on LP from Polydor Records, but it included dialogue from the movie mixed in with the songs and score, uh, making it more of a souvenir of the movie overall and not something that a fan of Rubinstein's score could really enjoy on its own. Entrada Records released a single-disc expanded edition in 2008, but this new edition from Quartet Records is as complete as you can get, uh, with alternates of cues and the entire original 1983 LP included for nostalgia's sake, including the dialogue. Greetings. Hello. Shall we play a game? Oh, love to. Let's play Global Thermonuclear War. Now, Arthur Rubenstein composed a marvelously varied score for war games. Um, interestingly, there's really no single main theme. Um, instead, there are multiple interwoven themes and motifs uh, for the characters. Um, and also there's both electronic synth pop and some orchestral tonalities that provide a real discernible arc for the score. From beginning to end, the score shifts uh, from uh, being electronic to being more orchestral by the end of the movie. Now, some of Rubenstein's melodies also were embellished with vocals, um, although these vocal versions were mostly dropped from the movie uh, for the instrumental versions instead. Uh, so they were sort of saved just for the soundtrack album uh, in, in this situation. Now, after the brief suspenseful prologue that opens the movie, Rubenstein um, then moves into the main title sequence with a really bright military march, uh, the sort of orchestral bombast that then retreats for most of the first act and then it returns in full force later. So here is that main title military march uh, from War Games.
following the main title sequence, um, the the rest of the the early sequences in the movie with Broderick's character, uh, who's a high schooler named David, are mostly scored with synths, uh, electronics, and some vocals. Um, his character really has two themes. Both are first presented in the synth pop versions. Um, with these melodies then later shifting over to the orchestra once David is on the run and leaves home. It's interesting that they move from sort of a digital landscape to an analog landscape or a more acoustic landscape. Now, the melodic line in this early cue called Video Fever is the more optimistic of the two themes for David. Uh, This cue has lyrics and vocals by Cynthia Morrow. Uh, The lyrics sort of espouse how great playing video games is and how it makes you feel alive. (laughs) But what's interesting is this cue, Video Fever, uh, it presents like three main melodic elements uh, that uh, Rubenstein will use throughout the score. It does have the main melodic line. It's one of David's themes, but um, he'll use the bridge sometimes separately, and then the opening uh, little rising three notes he'll sometimes use also just separately on its own. So he really gets a lot of mileage out of this one cue. Uh, again, this is Video Fever from War Games. So as an example of how Rubenstein takes uh, that melodic material in the electronic synth pop version and migrates it over to the orchestra, if you keep that melodic line in mind, specifically specifically the bridge of the song, um, here you can hear him move it into the orchestra um, voiced by the strings. This is part of a cue called The Games Begin. In addition to some of these uh, melodies that I'm mentioning, um, there's also a delicate sort of melancholy theme for the character of Professor Falcon, and there there's some rumbling low-range uh, motifs for the Whopper computer system at NORAD. Uh, once things get more tense as the uh, film moves into its uh, latter half, the orchestra really fires up with plenty of brass and percussion, uh, with Arthur Rubinstein really um, having to kind of stoke the sense of danger and menace of a potential nuclear 
war between U.S. and Russia, something which is only really ever displayed by on-screen graphics. So I find that his music really has to gener- it really has to work to generate a lot of the excitement. Um, one example of that is the final game sequence at the end of the movie, um, where it's it's sort of you know masterful as far as the editing and the the graphics on screen. It's it's terrifying. Um, but his music, Rubenstein's cue for the sequence called Winner None, really does a lot to heighten this sense of absolute uh, terror at what people are watching, these graphics that they're watching on screen of what seems to be a, an absolute uh, catastrophe happening. So this cue is called Winner None from War Games. So I've always found it interesting how the score and the movie wrap up. So everything sort of closes with this uh, unassuming, folksy, folk-tinged sort of cue, um, which actually is an instrumental of a song for the written for the movie titled Edge of the World. But in the film, the vocal line is replaced by a harmonica, as performed by Tommy Morgan. The vocal version is uh, is on the soundtrack album, actually. But with this uh, cue, which um, it's basically, like I said, it's sort of a a small-scale, unassuming piece, um, mainly focused on the harmonica taking the melodic line, um, harp, banjo, and then eventually a solo trumpet. It really sets it far apart from the synth-pop cues early in the movie, and even all of the um, big orchestral cues uh, that sort of then dominated the latter half of the movie. Um, it's just interesting because the harmonica always has this simple, humble quality, and uh, it just, you can't help but disassociate when you hear the harmonica to think of, you know, something in, in the woods, something um, rural, and I find that it, it sort of musically sets it as this analog solution to the busy digital environment that was first presented in the score, and even sort of a calm antidote to all the orchestral brassy fireworks. Um, and then the military percussion that dominated a lot of the the latter half of the score. 
So I just find it an interesting and fascinating way to to end the score and end the movie. So here is the instrumental version of that uh, song, Edge of the World. Uh, this is what's heard in the movie uh, it's, uh, with the harmonica uh, performed by Tommy Morgan. Incidentally, that melody does make a few appearances um, late in the movie before the end credits. So it's not a complete surprise out of nowhere, but it is a surprise that it's the theme that's heard for the wrap-up of the movie. So this two-CD set of War Games from Quartet Records is really fantastic. Uh, it also includes some detailed liner notes by John Takis. Um, the sound quality is fantastic. Um, and of course, the music is great. Um, check it out if you're a fan of War Games, if you're a fan of Arthur Rubinstein. Um, and hey, if you've ever wanted dialogue from the movie to hear at any time, it's available at the push of a button. Greetings. Hello. Are you still playing a game? Of course. I should reach DEFCON 1 and launch my missiles in 28 hours. Would you like to see some projected kill ratios? For the third and last new album released to showcase on this episode, uh, it's one that's also from Quartet Records, and it is a stellar new performance of Bernard Herrmann's music for Francois Truffaut's The Bride Wore Black from 1968. So this is a score from the legendary composer that's never really had an official release on CD of the entire score. Uh, the original recording session tapes have long since vanished. And so uh, since then, it's mainly been presented in brief concert suites um, that have been uh, recorded over the years. And this score, uh, just for some context, this score is from late in Herman's career. Um, this is after his professional split uh, with director Alfred Hitchcock after he'd left the United States and moved to the UK. And it was a time 
when unfortunately he was receiving fewer and fewer film assignments. Uh, the sound of movies was moving in a different direction uh, than the sound that he was providing in his music. Now, this happened to be the second and final collaboration with notable French filmmaker Francois Truffaut, uh, who two years prior, 1966, uh, he had hired Bernard Herrmann to score his uh, adaptation of the famous science fiction book Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Now, The Bride Wore Black, also based on a novel, is a dark, almost noirish story about a bride-to-be named Julie whose groom is accidentally assassinated on their wedding day, prompting her to hunt down the men who killed him. Herman uh, crafted a rich, swelling score, heavy on the strings, um, with harp, woodwinds, and vibraphone, with some really punchy accents from the horns. Uh, And it's given a really crisp, uh, beautiful performance by the Basque National Orchestra, as conducted by Fernando Velasquez. Velasquez. Sorry about that. I've never seen the movie, actually, and so I was only really familiar with the music uh, from the concert suite conducted by Elmer Bernstein on a 1993 compilation album of music from Hitchcock's movies. But what I discovered through listening to this new recording is I'd really underestimated how thematically varied this score actually is, and that for anyone familiar with Herman's overall canon, it's a real close cousin to his music for... Uh, the movies Marnie, Obsession, and Vertigo. It has a similar sort of uh, beautifully tragic or tragically beautiful sound to it, um, but it's um, really got a, a wealth of uh, wonderful thematic material. Although probably the most immediately notable component is that Herman punctuates the score a few times with these twisted minor key bursts of the famous Wedding March by Felix Mendelssohn. Um, often used to bolster the moments of Julie's revenge, and it's almost weirdly celebratory, um, as you can hear in this cue here. So the score can shift from something that's kind of uh, mocking and warped, like uh, that that version of uh, of the wedding march uh, that sort of, like I said, pu- sort of punctuates the murders, to um, something like a very pensive waltz uh, that Herman employs in uh, in a cue called the reception. Um, it's a it's a really lovely theme, and it's sort of tinged with a bit of sadness. And um, in this cue, the waltz 
pauses at brief intervals for statements of Julie's theme, which is heard on solo flute. It's about, it's, it's sort of an eight note theme. It's very sad. And uh, sometimes it's only heard in five or six uh, note phrases, but um, it often will punctuate other cues throughout the score. And usually on solo flute, sometimes on vibraphone. Um, but here in this cue, like I said, called the reception, um, you have the waltz, this waltz theme. And uh, like I said, it's, you'll hear it, it being interrupted at times with statements of this theme on solo flute, uh, which is Julie's theme. I had mentioned that this score is more thematically varied than I had expected, um, as I found that uh, Bernard Herrmann uh, was composing unique themes and motifs representing each of the sequences where Julie tracks down, ensnares, and kills the men who murdered her fiancé. So the overall arc of the score is kind of separated out by some distinct musical vignettes uh, with a, with a, sort of its, its own unique theme that isn't heard elsewhere, and it just sort of identifies that particular character, Julie's target, uh, for that particular sequence. Um, the recurring thematic material really winds up being Julie's theme. Um, there is, the, of course, the warped wedding march statements. Um, that happens a few times. Some light pizzicato travel music, and then uh, there's a theme which closes out this next cue called Bliss's Death and the Scarf. So in this cue, the waltz theme is interrupted by another warped twist of the wedding march as the med as a murder occurs but then it takes a swift turn into this really hauntingly lovely string elegy uh, with woodwinds and harp um, added to it as well and it's performing this descending motif uh, that winds up being heard several times in the score that seems to represent memories of happier times for julie so this is a cue called bliss's death and the scarf from the bride wore black
Now, there's an interesting anecdote about that particular cue, is that you won't actually hear the second half of that cue in the movie itself. Um, the second half of that cue, that um, really sort of haunting, descending uh, string uh, statement, uh, was replaced in the film by a bright mandolin piece by Vivaldi. Um, it's something that relates to a plot detail in the movie, but it's really tonally a far cry from what Herman was trying to convey in his music. This is something that Francois Truffaut decided um, to put into the film instead of keeping Herman's music. Um, the Both versions of this cue, though, are presented on this new recording, which is great. Um, so you can actually hear the contrast here. So this is Bliss's death and the scarf, this cue again. But the second half moves from the, the murder part of the cue into this mandolin piece vibe, uh, this Vivaldi mandolin piece. According to um, some of the the notes about this release, Truffaut, the 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 he was trying to convey the lightness of this scarf that you see floating through the air um, by this Vivaldi piece as well, whereas Herman was trying to comment sort of psychologically on Julie's character as this scarf, you know, sort of floats through the air. So it's just interesting as far as like what you see versus something what you feel you know, uh, something psychological versus something visual that's being accentuated by each of these two different ways to um, musically underscore that that sequence. So I mentioned how each of the sequences will often have a unique uh, theme. Uh, each of the sequences where, where Julia is, is sort of tracking down one of the men, it will have its own sort of unique theme. One that is a particular favorite of mine is uh, for a character named Coral, um, and uh, there's a cue that's named Coral in the score, which is great because it actually opens with the little traveling motif, which recurs throughout the picture as, as Julie sort of travels to the next destination. You get a statement of Julie's theme. Then you get to the theme for this character uh, named Coral, and it's a very uh, it's it's much lighter in texture than the rest of the score had is up to this point. It has sort of a harp and flute uh sort of duet going on and it's it's very uh jaunty um but this is a cue that i thought was a real highlight of the score as well this is a cue called coral and again this is from the bride were black
in the biography of Bernard Herrmann uh, called A Heart at Fire Center by Stephen C. Smith, uh, there is a, a quote from Herman about The Bride Wore Black um, from around the time when the movie was made, and uh, he was quoted as saying, it was a story of emotional revenge, an emotional Monte Cristo. And then he, uh, Herman, also relayed to the BBC in 1967 that his goal with this score was to, quote, enter into the psychic thinking of a woman who was motivated by one motive, and that is to revenge the dead. Listening to this fantastic new recording from Quartet Records made me completely reevaluate the score for The Bride Wore Black, as it hadn't made much of an impact uh, from the previous concert suites that, I, that I'd heard over the years. Um, this just really changed it all, and I find it a Bernard Herrmann score that really rewards repeat listens uh, with its multitude of uh, thematic material, its little motifs, uh, its melancholic pauses amid these violent outbursts. Um, and it's strangely jaunty passages as well. Uh, so if you're a fan at all of Herman's uh, sort of lush romantic work uh, that you can hear in his scores for Vertigo and Marnie and Obsession, I think it's completely worth picking up, uh, again, from Quartet Records. It's a marvelous new recording. Uh, so um, I, I really congratulate them on uh, this achievement. It's, it's really wonderful. <laughs> I want to thank everyone for listening today as I presented my new segment called Now Playing. And I hope you found it both entertaining and engaging as I explored uh, some new soundtrack album releases, uh, both for new and classic titles. Music in this episode is from the following movies. First Man from 2018, composed by Justin Hurwitz. War Games from 1983, composed by Arthur Rubenstein. Which, honestly, I should probably, I think I actually kept saying Rubenstein instead of Rubenstein, so I apologize that I seem to go back and forth on that. Um, also, The Bride Wore Black from 1968, composed by Bernard Herrmann, in a new recording performance by the Basque National Orchestra, conducted by Fernando Valasquez, uh, the last two albums of which are available from Quartet Records. If you'd like to send any comments or questions to the show, you can email me at podcast at gmail.com find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com on facebook at facebook.com slash escortasettle and on twitter at score2settlepod that's score the number two settle pod if you listen to the show by way of itunes feel free to leave a rating and a review that's always appreciated and of course we are now available on spotify if you frequent that platform thanks again for listening <laughs>